Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin We the Species. And uh, we're back. Uh, sounds like that's a, uh, they're back. It sounds like poltergeist. Uh, and I'm trying to keep in, in the theme. Uh, we're doing Lifeblood 2. It's a panel. Uh, and, and Gary is holding it up. Uh, this is our second uh, panel uh, talking with contributing writers to Lifeblood 2. Uh, it's a second panel. Uh, this is also July 5th. Uh, just putting this chronologically. Uh, and, and I'm uh, thrilled to do this because I've read and I've drifted into the world uh, of Lifeblood 2 and, and I've learned a tremendous amount of, of things about vampires that I didn't know. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's been kind of transformative in me to, to appreciate a whole new world. And, and my friend Gary and, and I, we met and, and we've done a few of these and Gary's orchestrated this. And today we are privileged to have Mike Korn and Renee Mulher, R.C. Mulher, uh, with us. Uh, and this is a panel talking about their work, uh, their writings, uh, and we'll drift off wherever we have to drift off uh, because it's an endless amount of things that we can talk about. And, oh, yeah. and I think the, the best part of this now is, is if you all, by the way, uh, uh, for you spiritual observers out there or your observers of synchronicities of life, for whatever reasons, the four of us are all wearing hats. <laughs> and you can, uh, you can figure that out. Mike studies some psychology. He can figure that out. I don't know what that <laughs> is. Uh, uh, we're but, all trying to conceal something. <laughs> probably, it's the, maybe. It's the hat chat. <laughs> maybe. Uh, that's a very good analysis. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, so let's start. Uh, with a little bio with Gary and then we'll kind of move around. Take it away, Gary. Okay, so I've done quite a few of these with Calvin and if you guys are frequent uh, viewers of these things, you probably are tired of me. But um, let's just say I, I started Music Street Journal in 1998 doing music reviews and interviews and things. Um, I published my first book, which I don't know if you can see it, but there's a cover back there. Strange Sound of Tulu, music inspired by the writings of H.P. Lovecraft in 2006. And uh, then since then, I've, I've written a lot of short stories, fiction and nonfiction stuff. And I started Tales of Wonder and Dread publishing uh, almost four years ago now and uh, have published, I don't know, 20, 26, 28 books, something like that. Nice. Uh, including Milestone last weekend, I published the first book by an author, that, a book that I didn't actually construct or compile or write myself by Elizabeth Lynn Blackson, right. which is an amazing book. And it just came out on Saturday and uh, she's an awesome author. And I'm really happy to be doing some, some full books by people other than myself. It's kind of a milestone and a new phase for Tales of Wonder and Dread. So um, yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> well, I also do spooky ventures, which are do spooky videos and things um so that's that okay mike 
Well, uh, by strange coincidence, I started my major writing thing virtually the same year that Gary did, the year that we met. I did like a little paper fanzine called Wormwood Chronicles that started out being stapled together in my bedroom. And wow. it grew to a large, like over 50 pages. And then we had to convert to the, uh, the internet because it was tough getting the advertising for the print zine. And with just a couple of hiccups, it's gone now pretty close to 22 years. Wow. And uh, we write on a variety of subjects. Uh, music is the big thing, but we've also got like a paranormal column. Uh, we write about like cult movies and underground movies. Uh, we got a little bit of a wrestling column that we do. Um, I also write for Music Street Journal uh, now and then for uh, Gary's publication and another webzine called Ravenous Monster. I've got quite a few articles up there and another one should be out this week. Uh, outside of that, not too much to tell that would be interesting. Uh, that's my main output is Wormwood and the other uh, zines that I mentioned. Let, let, let me add, if you go to Wormwood, my stuff is there too, but you won't see it under my name. It's under Dark Star. So, Yeah, yeah, I write as Dr. Abner Malady. That's, that's my pen name. So once in a while, you'll see stuff under my real name, but not too often. Okay, Renee, RC. All right. Well, I've been writing almost since before I could actually write. I think the first thing I quote unquote wrote was a story that I dictated when I was four years old to my mother. And I think she still has it in a drawer somewhere, but mm. I've been writing off and on ever since then. Although I didn't get published until about seven years ago when I met up with a group called the New England Horror Writers when they did a panel discussion at our local library. And I was kind of in a sort of between stage i'd just come off of a rather rather um a weird summer where there was a labor dispute at the grocery store where i work and i'd gotten laid off temporarily but then i'd gotten my job back and i was like well i'd face my fear of losing my job and then getting it back what's 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 next so i thought okay i'm gonna face my next fear and try getting published because i got chatting with this one guy and he asked me how long I'd been writing. And I said, well, I've been writing since I was knee high to a knee, blah, 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 blah. And he says, well, why aren't you published yet? And I said, well, I work grocery retail. It takes a lot of my time and energy. So he says, well, how long have you worked grocery retail? And I said, well, I've worked it about 13 years. He looks me in the eye and he says, if you can work grocery retail for 13 years, you can get published. And I thought, well, why the heck not? You know, it's like, there's a, there's a certain toughness that you have to, that you have to have. And when you're doing grocery retail, and it's the same thing that you need when you're getting published because you are going to have rejections, you know, left and right, and you got to, you know, learn to roll with them. And I certainly have. So, so since then, I've had about closing on 90 stories, most of it horror, mm. some science fiction, some fantasy. Most of it's published with indie publishing, although I've got a few uh, little small projects of mine that I tossed up on my Patreon page, but. Um, it's been an interesting ride. I kind of didn't, kind of almost stumbled into horror. I didn't think of myself 
as a horror writer per se, although I've liked spooky stuff since I was since I was a kid. And my mom was, you know, quoting Edgar Allan Poe poems to me and, you know, reading Grimm's fairy tales with me. Plus, I do live across the street catty corner from an old New England cemetery. And I've kind of I wouldn't say I was the kid that hung out in the cemetery, but it was like, oh, I walked through the cemetery and, you know, running running errands and what have you. And it was just no big deal. You know, it was just part of the landscape for me. So I'd actually tried getting into science fiction, but the kind of science fiction I was writing, it was sort of like five minutes into the future kind of stories. And it seemed like the technology kept surpassing what I was creating. So I kind of took a step back from that. And then fantasy fiction, I was kind of on the fence about writing because at the time it was like, um, almost like stuff was almost in the same ballpark as George R. R. Martin was really popular. And I, that was just not something that I was, you know, really, really felt capable of writing. But something dawned on me was that people are always going to be scared of something. You know, fear is, you know, like, like H.P. Lovecraft put it, fear is the oldest and strongest emotion known to man. Well, that, that's a very crude paragraph, uh, paraphrase rather. But I thought, I can do this. I can write about the things that go bump in the night and how people react to it and what's causing the bumps in the night. So, so that's... I basically just kind of, you know, I, I like, I like to say the horror, I, I didn't choose the horror writing life, the horror writing life chose me, as the kids would put it. So, so that's what got me into it. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, we're going to drift into, as I, I like to hold it up, we're going to drift into Lifeblood 2, which uh, I've basically read. Uh, Good man. Um, uh, and I, I want to, uh, I guess, start with the vampire Edna. <laughs> now, uh, Lifeblood 2 is broken uh, in, uh, down into two sections, fiction and nonfiction, and both so interesting. And we were, we were uh, talking for 40 minutes before we went on air just to familiarize our, ourselves with each other. And, and if I'm, and if I, uh, in my own in my own interpretive way uh making uh a judgment about what i've read on the fiction side and then on on the non-fiction side what i've observed in uh is uh the whole institution of vampires vampirism went from whatever it was back then to to now to what I, I call reading, uh, well, reading the vampire Edna, which you wrote, Renee, R.C., uh, uh, there's such an element in, in my world of, of believability. Uh, 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 and that's one of the things I'd love to talk about as you develop, uh, you know, uh, Edna Gilhooly, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, from the beginning of the story to the end, uh, for me, I'm saying to myself, this is, it's, it's like really real. <laughs> that's, so, yeah, that's, that's more, that's more or less, uh, that's more or less what, what I had in mind. It was like, I wanted to write a story and it kind of, it kind of grew out of working in grocery retail and, you know, the people that you meet, they are, but I want, I kind of was thinking, what would you get if you had vampires shopping in a grocery store? 
that's more or less where it started. Plus, it also grew out of a, a line that I constantly heard from several of my older customers. Oh, we'd be rich if we didn't have to eat. And I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, that's what, and I'm thinking to myself, what creature doesn't eat? And I'm thinking, okay, vampires, they don't really subsist on solids, they subsist on blood. So I was thinking, okay, that kind of was, was the germ of the story as I was thinking, you know, what would you get if, you know, an average late middle-aged person were to get changed into a vampire very unexpectedly? How would they adapt? You know, how would this, you know, how would they figure out how to navigate this new, you know, this very life-changing event that, you know, inverts their complete, you know, their, their life schedule. So, okay, now they got to sleep during the day and, you know, do their regular activities at night. You know, how do they adapt to that? How do they figure out where to get blood? And it kind of evolved from that. Plus there was also an interesting incident where I had a guy come through my lane in the checkout because I worked in the checkout mostly. And he had these two containers with this reddish stuff in it. And I was like, what the heck is that? And he's like, oh, it's beef blood. And I was like, beef blood? Because I had never seen it in our store before. And he says, yeah, we use, I'm using it to make my grandmother's blood sausage recipe with. And I was like, that's a thing? Yeah. I had never heard of it before. So then I looked into it. And there's, there's this whole, there, there are recipes using animal blood in different stuff i mean of course it's, it's congealed by the time you start working with it but and i thought okay you know not just good for blood sausage it might also be good for a vampire if they're doing their grocery shopping so that's i just i just basically i, I found myself uh, that I, I had to write this story because it was just too having these ideas circulate circulating in my head i just had to run with it and just you know write a story about you know a person who becomes your friendly neighborhood vampire and that's kind of that's that's where it went. <laughs> uh, again, for me, um, it, it it's very very believable. But you you had an element there that intrigued me, um, because uh, uh, I watched a ton of monster movies growing up, and even past that in, into modern times. But there was one, I'm trying to remember which movie it was, uh, but a whole bunch of townspeople uh, get together. Um, I don't know if it was the Wolfman, I don't remember. But uh, there was Deacon, the townspeople in your book, uh, they're marching through the woods with torches and bats and stuff. (laughs) And that's right out of a scene uh, 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 of a black and white uh, tech noir uh, a horror movie. I don't know if, if you relate to that uh, or that. I would... didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really grow up watching those. Although I kind of started getting into them more, almost also about the same time that I, I seriously started writing horror. And I, I kind of treated it as almost like a, not exactly a crash course in classic horror, but I felt like okay, I need to, you know, engage with more of what's gone before so I can have a better idea of you know, not exactly what to write, but just, you know, just inspiration and just how to do it. Okay. And yeah, we got it. We got into watching uh, Spenguli a lot once we found it on uh, one of the nostalgia stations up here. And yeah, we just, and which, which is kind of odd because my family, my, my family really isn't a horror family, but 
you know, my my dad was watching. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen some. I saw this when I was a kid. And you know, he's he's not big on horror, but he likes the old black and white stuff. So we kind of we kind of bonded over that. And yeah, I kind of had the the image of Edna being the kind of person that yeah, she grew up watching. You know, the old black and white horror movies. You know, when she, when she was a, when she was a teenager or whatnot. You know, either in the theaters or you know on the, you know the you know the late night. Uh, you know, creature feature type stuff. And I kind of had the, the mental image of her sort of, you know, she, she engaged with that. She, you know, she grew up with that and then, you know, kind of thought about, you know, well, well, what would it, what would it be like to be a vampire? And just, you know, it was just one of those things that just kind of faded into the background of her head as she goes about her ordinary life. And then all of a sudden she's living this life that she, kind of sort of thought about and you know finding that it's completely different from what it's what it is in the movies and it was just kind of almost like a play on the you know the fact that you know they portray certain things certain ways in the movies but the real life version of whatever the thing is is completely different you know it's not as exciting or unglamorous as you know the movie makes it out to be doesn't make the movie wrong it just makes the movie fiction as opposed to as opposed to what reality is like (laughs) So that's kind of where I was going with that was, you know, you know, what the, what the fantasy version would be like versus what the, you know, the plausible reality version would be. And I just, I just, I, I seriously wanted to go for a plausibility angle because who knows, you know, there could be some kind of virus out there that could, you know, change a person. Cause another one thing that I read, you know, and I had just read this is just even, even before I got into horror was, um, I think it's by an author called Catherine Ramsfield. And I think the title of it is something like The Science of Vampires. And she does a deep dive into just how vampirism could work, you know, looks at different animal species that, yeah, do in fact, you know, you know, subsist on blood and how maybe just maybe this could work on a human being. I mean, it would have to rewire a lot of stuff in a person's physiology, but, you know, she, she, she dug deep into it and that it kind of left an impression on me even you know even before i got into horror you know per se i mean i was i was looking at it more from the like the science angle and you know how something fantastical could in fact work so i that was kind of in the back of my head as i was writing it although you know i went in completely different directions from what she you know what she she got into but but still it it did have an impact on 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 how that's that story you know you know sort of spooled out of my head I, I, I read a series of books a long time ago. I'm trying to recall the author's name, but the first book was called The Empire of Fear. And it was very much based on the scientific aspect of vampirism as a disease. And it sort of theorized a world where basically the vampires were the royalty. They were the royal people that ran Europe and stuff. And one guy, for one reason, had found like a cure for it. And well, of course, the ruling classes, they don't want to be cured. That's the secret to their power. And he found out it originated in Africa. So he took a trip there to see if he could find out more about it. And it was fascinating because they described, you know, kind of like a culture where like uh, King Richard the Lionheart 
was still around in the 1600s oh, because wow. he, he was a royal vampire. Wow. And uh, there was no, history was different. I, I don't mm. want to go into it too much because it became very intricate. Mm. But uh, America never became an independent country because the vampire legions that ran it direct from Europe couldn't, couldn't be beaten. They couldn't be beaten in battle. Hmm. Uh, it was a very fascinating take on it, how it changed history and uh, how it changed science. And how science was almost frowned on and forbidden because the powers that ran everything didn't want people to discover the secret of vampirism. I think the author's name was Brian Aldis, but I might be wrong. But, uh, that, that was back in the 80s. And I was really fascinated by those books. They were really took that approach very seriously. Hmm. So I'm listening one. to you guys and something's, you know, um, something popped into my head. Uh, it's not off topic, but uh, I got so uh, it, it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know vampires have eternal life, correct? As long eternal as life. they can get what they need. Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, we here on this planet spend. Uh, I just saw the other day uh, ten or twenty billion dollars a year on on vitamins to give us longer life and 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 uh there's all kinds of research longer life well it would seem to me that uh in in, in of course this is fiction but uh it would seem to me that uh i would line up and wait you know 18 hours uh for somebody to bite my neck so i could <laughs> live forever uh if we we here as a species but I'm, I'm, I'm saying, what's so bad? Uh, I mean, you can't hang out in the daytime, but <laughs> otherwise, you know, that's what I'm throwing out to you guys. Uh, you know, as I'm seeing what I'm reading in Lifeblood too, the believability of this, wouldn't it? You know, it, uh, I, I would, I would run around a cemetery trying to find a vampire to bite me, so that I could. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, in, in my vampire universe, because I've got, as you notice, my stories are all interconnected into like one vampire universe. And in my vampire universe, and, and in fact, uh, I think one of the stories in there, yeah, uh, in uh, Dragon's End, they talked about it a little bit, about how um, they didn't used to have rules and it became a problem because the vampires sort of look at it as the humans are sort of like livestock. You need to keep a certain number of them around, which means you need to keep your numbers small enough that you don't wind up consuming them all and you don't wind up visible enough for them to hunt you down. And so they've got a whole ruling system that decides, you know, how you need to stay hidden and how you keep your numbers low. You have to have permission to turn someone into a vampire. You can't just go out and do it. Um, because honestly, if there were vampires and it were like anybody they bite turns into a vampire, it wouldn't be long until they'd run out of food because you'd have all these immortals walking around looking for humans to bite and there just aren't enough humans. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of where I went with it. 
Okay. Now, taking, um, switching, switching hats since we're all wearing one. Okay. Uh, uh, you wrote, uh, and I was, I mean, this was all new to me, but you wrote a nonfiction thing, Gary. Um, and that'll segue uh, into Mike's uh, work, uh, Wormwood Files. But so you wrote something, uh, was Elizabeth Bathory and uh, a vampire torturer and murderer? And, and uh, of course, I never heard of her until I read you. And then parenthetically, I, I, I read Mike's work. Uh, um, can you talk about her? Because she's in she's in the Guinness World Book of Records, which is meaningful. Uh, she was a bad lady. Well, here, here's the thing about that. Now, Mike and I, I think, have very have somewhat different opinions of of her. And honestly, it's a, it's up to what part of history everybody reads and and believes. Um, you know, obviously, the, the the victors are the ones that write history. And um, that's why, like, you know, all these stories are coming out about Vlad the Impaler that may very well be an exaggerated because they were written by the people who he subjugated. And, you know, so they're the ones that are going to hate him and blah, blah, blah. Similarly, um, the thing about Elizabeth Bathory, number one, it said that she had epilepsy. Well, at the time, epilepsy, one of the, one of the, a couple of the cures for epilepsy, they thought that uh, rubbing blood on your lips and or brain material from people would uh, cause you, would help your epilepsy. So she probably did that to, for help to help with her epilepsy. Um, also, there was a little bit of a thing going on where the king in her area, her husband owed, the, the, the king owed her husband lots and lots of money. When her husband passed away, a lot of the stories that came out about all of the torturing and stuff that she did came from the king, who was the one who passed down her judgment and basically took all of the resources that her husband had, which wiped out his debt. So it's actually really, really possible that very little of that story is true. Um, but if it is true, she did torture a lot of children and stuff. And, and that wasn't uncommon in those days. You know, um, the ruling class did tend to look on the peasants as sort of almost livestock. Again, you know, back to that. They would do what they wanted with them. And she could very well have been a really cool person. A lot of those people were. So there might be some truth in it. There might be no truth in it. Or, you know, I don't think it's all true, probably. But supposedly she, she some people say she bathed in the blood to stay youthful. Um, now, Mike's got a different take on it. I know that. All right, Mike, we'll segue into... The well, Wormwood Files, Vampire Tales. There, there's a bunch of, not a bunch, but you introduce some, um, some really interesting characters, real characters. Uh, so if you wanted to kind of chat about them, some well, of them are scary people. Yeah, yeah. I, I just did an article that was how vampirism intruded intrudes into the real world. Um, and of course, there's a. I write a good bit about Countess Bathory in there, and it, and it, it is true that the time and place that she lived was very brutal. I mean, there, there not a lot of the, the rulers of those times were would be considered philanthropists or good people. 
but uh, I, I don't find it much of a stretch that somebody got so used to being immune that they treat peasants and lower people, just treat them basically like, like cattle or just there to be used. Um, so I did write about her and then I can't remember the fellow's name, escapes me now, the uh, immigrant gentleman over in Europe that died in his apartment who had such an abnormal fear of vampires that everything in his life was dominated by that. And in a real ironic way, it wound up killing him anyway. I mean, his, his room was full of garlic. Uh, they had containers that mixed like salt and urine and garlic. And, oh, uh, Dimitri, Demetrius Mayakura. Mayakura, yeah, that's it. That's, that's him. And he, he was a, a guy that sort of fell between the cracks alike. Uh, he lived a real quiet life in England and nobody really knew much about him. And one day he didn't show up and they went in and the cops found uh, this bizarre scene in his apartment. So when you were talking earlier, uh, Mr. Schwartz, about putting the garlic on the windows and stuff like <laughs> that, that's, that's immediately my mind jumped to that. Only this guy took things 10,000 times more serious. Uh, his actual cause of death was choking to death on a clove of garlic. Oh my! And uh, yeah, I, I've seen I've seen the picture of his body when it was not very pleasant. I mean, oh. he'd been dead for a few days. He was completely contorted, and oh. mouth was hanging open. He was on a a bed, and he had put newspapers all around the bed, so anybody walking you know, would make a, a crackle or a noise and he'd wake up. Oh uh, crosses were everywhere. Uh, it was just like a, a kind of a mania that sort of overtook his life and finally put an end to it. But uh, he came from a, a, a part of the world where the belief in vampirism was very, very strong. And the vampires, the traditional ones, were not sexy characters. Not at all. Uh, yeah, they didn't. They didn't walk around in business suits or go into parties or anything like. They they stank like a, a corpse. I mean, they were repulsive to look at. Uh, couldn't speak. Most of them. Uh, it was a very different concept of a vampire in those locations in time. And there are still places in Romania, even today, where that belief runs pretty high. Wow. But uh, yeah, I, I once I read that story of Mayakura, I had to write something about it because that was a, a strange tale for sure. Yeah, I, I, wow. I wrote that down in, in my notes. And yes, uh, we talked about this before we went on air. When I was a young kid growing up, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, um, I used to babysit for my two little sisters, and, and I would watch exactly these horror, you know, The Wolfman and, 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 and Frankenstein and Dracula and, and all this stuff. And uh, I was so petrified that I used to get garlic powder and 
sprinkle it on the windowsills. I was petrified. And and I was a poor kid. If I would have had a couple of bucks in my pocket, I would have gone to a jewelry store and bought a crucifix um, <laughs> to have. Um, uh, um, because that's you know the power but uh you, you know mike you wrote about some some murders in in florida in the 1990s that were rather horrific that yeah. might have had some vampiric undertones yeah yeah it was a, a basically like a cult that practiced vampirism for real i mean they, they eventually were arrested and the ring was broken up uh they weren't supernatural creatures, but they 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 drank blood, and occasionally this sort of mania pops up down through the ages, and that was a recent manifestation of it. But uh, pe people were really killed in that. It's so it, it's not something I'm sure the cops, you know, when they thought there were vampires running around and they they kind of had to take it a little bit more serious in that case mm. uh, Gary going back uh, again we're talking about lifeblood too um, going back to what you wrote about Elizabeth Bathory uh, I think to give her more credence on, on just how bad she was you wrote about the fact that guinness labeled her the most prolific woman murderer in history so that i mean uh guinness is pretty reliable isn't it yes but on the other hand you look at it this way those are they were going off of records that were written hundreds of years ago and there's nobody alive for them to interview about it um nobody who was actually there so you know, it, it, just like anything in history that far back, all we have to rely on is what somebody wrote. And, um, you know, what records remained are, are the people who remained in power, um, especially, you know, back then, not a lot of people knew how to write. So I don't know what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe, but uh, it's, it's hard to say. And it's kind of odd that Guinness, because Guinness does, like, especially contemporary stuff, they're very, very good at checking that stuff out. But those old historical ones, what really do they go off? They well, go on historical records, and there's there's no real way to verify that. The, re the, record, the records of that trial, because she was put under trial, yeah. are, pretty, are pretty easy to find. Uh, any, any trials involving the nobility or the people that were higher up were kept, they kept the records as a matter of course. But, but on the other hand, if you've got the king is the one who is, is wanting you out of the way, you know, especially now, even today, it's pretty easy for someone like that to, to really manipulate witness, witness testimony, manipulate who knows what. But even then, it was, it was much more so. So, you know, I don't know how much we can believe. Then again, I'm always the skeptic. I'm always looking to, you know, um, look at what the real facts are and, and, and try to look behind it. So that's just sort of the way my mind works. Um, I'm willing to demystify things as much as possible <laughs> if there's an option to do that. So that's just the way my mind works. So let me ask you all a, a question um, that just popped into my head as we're discussing this. Um, 
would Hollywood ever consider making a movie? Would it be too gory? Would it be too horrific uh, on on the life of Elizabeth Bathory? They already have uh, Countess Dracula. Countess Dracula. That's oh, wow. With the yeah. first one, that was by Hammer uh, in the early 70s. I saw it like about seven or eight months ago. And there's also been a more contemporary version of that, one of a, these direct-to-video movies. I haven't seen that one, so I can't, I can't quote on it. But I mean, since it's in modern times, I'm sure it's a bloodbath. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Countess Dracula one was was not something you would go to for his real historical accuracy. Uh, but it was it was based on her. It was wow. definitely her story. Wow. Um, a little a little segue since we're talking about uh, Hollywood, uh, and again, part of the theme of this panel uh, is the overall believability uh, how vampirism was treated when Bram Stoker's you know. Uh, started that to to today and and in 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 reading renee's work about edna you know uh you know going to a supermarket buying uh you know blood uh uh presumably for blood sources but not but that's believable i mean that's like this is modern day stuff so uh uh and and, and impact wise uh, i and we talked about this too before we went on air. You know, I watched that movie Fright Night, uh, uh, and and uh, it, it's semi-comedic, but it's also it's also heavy they, duty. It's real life. You they know, treated like, they treated the vampires seriously. They yeah. didn't turn them into comedians. No, oh. the, the, which, well, which except I, maybe for Evil Eddie. <laughs> well, even he was not a character you'd want to run into. No, but he was a little comedic. Yeah. He was a little over the top. Yeah. Uh, but the the impact uh, that it, it had going back, uh, uh, and, and you know, I'm just using myself as an example, going back when in the movie House of Wax. Yeah. Came out with Vincent, Vincent Price, Price one or the one that came before it? No, the one with Vincent Price. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I mean, I, I actually saw it a couple of years ago again, uh, and I realized, uh, you know, we've come a long way in movie making since back in the fifties. Uh, but as a young kid, that scene of that possible pretty woman being turned into wax uh had a lasting effect on me you know so what i'm saying is there's great power in in both the written word uh which you're doing and and there's great power uh, also in the visual side uh do you guys consider that when you write things the power that you're wielding in creating uh, especially for younger, impressionable people, kids. You 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 have to 
no, no special effect ever created can match the human imagination. I mean, you could write, when you write a story, you don't have to worry about a budget, you know, or doing things technically. You can just, with a few choice words, let your reader do the work for you, you know, usually. Uh, I'm reading some short stories right now and I, I, I kind of see them in my mind as movies, but I wonder, I wonder if the actual movie would ever be as good as what I see. And usually the answer is no. And interestingly enough, when I write fiction, I see it as a movie. And if I had the skill set and the budget, I'd probably do them as movies, but I don't. So I put them down in words um, because that, that's how it always works to me. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned what if younger people read this stuff or whatever do you consider that. Uh, funny, I found out recently that uh, our 10 year old granddaughter considers me her favorite author and she's. <laughs> read a ton of a ton of the books I've put out loves it wow. and she loves those stories and she's into she's into very dark stuff and creepy stuff that said there are works of mine that I wouldn't want her to read um they're definitely too over the top and I've written one I've got one another vampire story that's coming out in um horrifying Halloween and also in uh spooky Berwyn too this fall that is the darkest uh grittiest just plain evilest thing I've ever written. And I mean, I got done writing it. I was like, did I go too far with this? Because <laughs> it's just sort of, I've taken, you know, I took with my vampire world, I took them and sort of went with the vampire, the masquerade kind of thing, where they're sort of the glamorous, they're not quite glamorous, but they're sort of likable characters. And now, because I'm getting ready to turn it all into one big book with all these stories gathered together, the darker side is coming out. And um, there's to, to without getting into too much information, the story that I just finished, which I haven't, I've only done the first draft so far. One of the vampires is watching that there are all these stories about vampire killings in the Chicago area, and he's curious about it because you know he wants to know who is getting attention to vampires. And so he does, he's a private detective, so he does his private detective work, and he finds that there's a serial killer going around and torturing women and killing them and making it look like vampire killings. Does he stop them? No, he uses it for his advantage. He sits and watches. Well, he doesn't watch. He sits outside the window and listens while the guy tortures someone to death. And then only when he's done, does he pay attention? Cause he's like, I don't really want to hear all that screams. I'm tired of that stuff, but he's not a good. And he's like, what, did you think I was going to stop it? I'm not a good guy. You know? So it's like, I, I went much darker with it this time. And it's like, that so something like that I wouldn't want kids to read mm. by any means. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Renee. Yeah, I I'm I'm much like Gary in, in my writing process. At is in that, oftentimes I'll start with like one image or one bit of dialogue, and it's like I got to tell the story that works up to this moment. So I do kind of have a cinematic take on how I'm writing it. It does tend to play as a mini movie in my head. I mean, I'll even, you know, up to and including, I'll, you know, mentally cast 
you know, actual actors as if, you know, in, in my mind, you know, if I were like a casting director for, you know, the movie that is this story, you know, who would I want playing this role? And it does kind of help to keep, you know, my focus anchored on, you know, how is this going to, how is this going to look? How is this going to play out? So it, it does, it does work out that way. And, you know, I kind of do hope that, you know, you know, my story does have that effect on, you know, some person reading this, you know, whether they're a younger person or an older person that, you know, you know, this thing will give them that moment where they, you know, they have to leave the light on as they go to bed for just a little while longer because, you know, that bit is playing in their head and they're just, you know, because I have, I have had some moments reading things. Uh, I think probably one, probably one of my favorite incidents was uh, when I read H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Rats of the Walls for the first time, one of my favorites of this. Yeah, yeah. I finished reading that, and then something starts scratching in the wall <laughs> behind my chair, and I literally screamed and yeeted the book across the room. <laughs> it was like, oh boy, yikes! <laughs> there was actual scratching in the wall, and I was just reading about scratching in the wall. <laughs> so, yeah, what you you know you've arrived as a horror author when something in a story causes one of your readers to contact you in some way shape or form and say you know i can't look at such and such thing now quite the same way i did that that happened to me with another story of mine that involved you know i, I don't want to get too much into it but it involved somebody reanimating a roast turkey and then one of my co-workers at my day job turns to me and says hey i read your story and such and such and now i can't look at frozen turkeys quite the same way anymore on top of the plot twist, this was around Christmas and there were a lot of people buying frozen turkeys for their Christmas dinner. So I I was like, you just told me the best thing ever. I think I think one of the coolest things you can do in horror writing is to make something that's an everyday thing scary. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't horror, but Doctor Who did that with the Autons when they had <laughs> mannequins that you see everywhere suddenly come to life and attack people. You know, it's like you see them every day in your life if you go into a store, you know? Um, yeah, so exactly. You take everyday items and turn them into yeah. something lightning. That's cool. Yeah, I, th I, th I think uh, John Barrowman, who plays Jack Harkness on uh, on Doctor Who and in Torchwood, I think that happened to him as a kid growing up and watching Doctor Who. It got to the point where he had to hide his face and his mother's, like her arm or something when they were going shopping and you know he would see the store mannequins. I was like, oh boy. And then he grew up to be on Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> that is that is a scary premise. Uh, you know, Storm Anakin. It's funny, uh just it's scary anyway. It is scary. Uh, all around. There's two things that come to mind. Uh I I had interviewed about eight months ago uh, an environmental uh conservationist in Paris and he just finished a book called Stone Child and I read it uh, and and uh, the premise is in, in London the all these statues they've got statues going back to Shakespeare and before some of them start coming to life uh, and delivering an environmental message uh, and 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 uh, it was a scary premise for me. And this is quote contemporary novel, not a horror novel, but you know what? It was horror for me. 
and it, it was really his name's Kevin uh, Albin, and it's called Stone Child. But you're talking about mannequins coming to life, so statues. Doctor, who did that with the the Weeping Angel statues? Oh boy. So you know it's powerful. And then in, in the '40s, there was a movie um, called One Touch of Venus. Um, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I know it. Yeah, uh, I I loved loved that was with Ava Gardner, early in her career. She, uh, she there's a statue of Venus in a department store, and 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 the uh, window dresser is fixing the statue to have it unveiled, uh, and and he just kisses the statue because it's so pretty, and the next thing he knows, the statue came to life. And it was Venus, uh, but that's a, a a nice kind of story. Remember, remember the Twilight Zone episode where uh, the, after the After Hours, yeah. the After they, Hours. That was the they best did that thing. In the I original ever saw. run, they did that one in the original run, and then they remade it when they brought. Yeah, the yeah, I, I I remember that. I think that was the best thing it had to do with the mannequin I ever saw. Yeah, that was a really good episode. Yeah, they had the thirteenth floor. Uh -huh. Which, if you were a human being, you couldn't go to, but if you were a mannequin, yep. it's okay. Wow. Yeah, I think Anne Francis was in the, the original. Anne Francis, yep. Yeah. Star. And she yeah. wound up, she, she found out she was a mannequin at the end of the movie. Yeah, they got like a wow. month to go off and be a human being. Wow. Yeah. That's a great plot. I missed that one. That's Rod Serling. That's a good one to uh, atmosphere. You you talk. That's something that's lost in a lot of modern films. That 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 was something that was done with not big budget, not big special effects, but it had a great atmosphere to it. Hey, since we're talking about, and this is way off topic, but uh, I'd love to hear your impressions on this. Uh, uh, fantasy, not horror, but a little bit fantasy. So, The Wizard of Oz, mm -hmm. which I watch, you know, I watch a few times a year. I love it. Uh, I, I, from early on, I started telling my wife 30, 40 years ago, what if, and you can comment on this, what if Dorothy awakens after that dream that she's been to Oz? And she's lying in bed there in the Kansas farm and Auntie M uh, and they're all there in, in real life. And they pull the they pull the blanket off her and she's wearing those ruby slippers. Oh. That would be a nice touch. That yeah, that would be a great touch. Isn't that a better way to end that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. Somebody's got to do that version. <laughs> okay, I just... Have any of you seen Tin Man? Hmm. Have you seen that? Anybody? Tin Man? It was a, a sci-fi network. Did, oh, it was like a I, yeah. I, I'm familiar with it. It yeah. It's fiction thing. I really liked that. It was like a mini-series. Yeah, I saw that forever ago. That's the best. I only on DVD. <laughs> 12 or 13 years ago, I think, that was on. I, I didn't see the whole thing, but I de I definitely remember it. Yeah. Another uh, movie that resonates with me, 
is the thing. It's Which the, version, the original or the? The, the original with James Ornest plays the. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, uh, I think, I think uh, that was pure horror science fiction for me. Uh, and 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 I marvel, and I'm a uh, I'm a real. You know what I watched the other night? Uh, I told my wife. I, I don't know why I did this. I guess I have too much time on my hands. But I watched Steve McQueen in The Blob. Yeah, oh, sure. that's a classic. That's a good one. Did you, did you know they every year at that theater? Isn't that theater in Jersey? It's Pennsylvania, yeah. I think. Pennsylvania. Okay. Every year at that theater, they run that movie. And you can go see the movie at that theater. Wow. 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 It, oh, wow. Yeah, that would be cool to do. I, that's sort of a, a bucket list thing I would like to do. Wow. So uh, I, I watched The Blob, and, and uh, it was made in, in, in the 50s, 57, I think. And, and I was so, I don't know why I watched it, uh, uh, and it was so bad. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, bad. The dialogue was terrible, <laughs> uh, uh, and it, it it really was bad. But the the premise, you know, there's an interesting premise there. Um, the the monster yeah. concept was brilliant. Yes, uh, and and the, the idea that it was the teenagers that had to fight the monster, and the authority figures were baffled or didn't right. believe it. Uh, yeah, I thought of the kids versus the monsters. That was probably one of the better films of its kind. Exactly. Well, they they that came out in the time when the Blackboard Jungle came out, and and a lot of movies depicting and and um uh what's the name with with James Dean, a Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. In other words, they were uh, documenting the the rebellion of young youth in the 50s. Uh, and, and of course, the blob was the antithesis because they were heroes. Yeah. Uh, while most movies were depicting kids as uh, juvenile delinquents. Uh, and, and I want to say that actually ties in. I think we talked on, about this on the other Lifeblood 2 thing was the Gorbals Vampire again, uh, which I don't, you guys were involved in that one. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but in the 50s in Scotland, uh, there was a, a story about a vampire, a seven-foot-tall vampire with huh. steel fangs in this cemetery. Huh. Well, the story spread amongst the kids in the town. The adults were kind of kept out of it. Huh. What did the kids do? They didn't go tell the parents about it. They gathered together, got, got big uh, sticks and stuff, and went into the cemetery where they thought it was and tried to kill this vampire for nights in a row. Oh my so the police gosh. caught on to it, and then it got into the, the whole, all the parents were like, what's going on with this? And um, the funny thing about that, I think the, the funniest punchline about that, you know, it tells you something about Scotland. Most towns would kind of downplay this and, and like, oh, this is an embarrassing moment. No, they have a big mural about it, and they're really <laughs> proud of that. It's a claim to fame for this town. But I almost think, I, I couldn't find any evidence about it, but I still think that it was sort of, had to be part of the inspiration for the Lost Boys because that's really what that is. You know, yeah. the kids are the only ones that know about it and they're going out to fight it. Mm. But yeah, so that's sort of the same premise with that the kids are getting up, rising up to fight something. And you, you mentioned England, um, uh, Scotland. Um, 
Great Britain. The uh, uh, American Werewolf in London. Oh yeah. Mm. Petrified. <laughs> Petrified. I mean, these. And as an adult, I saw it, and and the the power, you know, the power uh, of, of horror and imagination. What you guys do is enormous power because it could take me as an adult and and leave me chilled mm. uh and and that's you know that's the power in what you guys do uh, as horror writers uh uh and even contemporizing it uh, uh as you did renee with with edna who well, i'd love to see a see a short little film on that you know uh, oh so would i <laughs> like a short little um short little video uh a uh, short short film yeah uh on that so fun. uh uh and, and and it's funny uh i thought that the the clincher for me was the the last line mm. uh, uh uh in in edna that that's to me that's just a powerful last line um so um I just want to uh, remind folks. I, I think we've covered. Uh, if anybody has any other, we, listen, we could talk for hours. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> I mean, great the uh, work we got here. Yeah, we we could talk for hours and hours on this, uh, on Lifeblood too, and and on your work, and on the true, on the fiction, on the nonfiction. Uh, but I, I do want to remind folks. Uh, I'm just kind of looking. Uh, at the table of contents um, for folks. I saved the Beatles. You know what? That's probably one of my favorite stories I've ever written. Yeah, I, it, just a real quick uh, um, little summary of that. Uh, um, it's a first If you want person. to, if you want to. Yeah, it's fine. It's a first person story. Um, recounted by a guy who's a vampire but he's an interesting vampire because he doesn't kill um he refuses to kill he uh he works as a in a uh, mortuary and he takes blood from the corpses that come in instead um and he's recounting a story that happened in 1964 when the beatles came to new york city and one of his fellow vampires who He's decided probably was a serial killer before she was turned into a vampire. Oh boy! Decides she wants to kill one or two of the Beatles. He, ah. he realizes he wasn't sure, and so he has to stop her from doing that because he's also a musician and a big music fan, and he doesn't want to see the Beatles get killed. And I love what I I think I love the best about that is the last line, which he says at the end, oh, "I'm going to leave you with one one thing, which is to say, obla di obla da." Which I thought was great. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. That is great. So um, I, I will never cover it all. Uh, <laughs> we'll never uh, cover it all. But uh, this was great, uh, and and I want to thank you you all for giving up part of your July fifth. <laughs> uh, My pleasure. Thanks this, for having this us. This is a lot of fun as always, Calvin. Yeah, uh, I, I think this is very special, beginning with our, our hat wearing 
<laughs> and, and your passion and we got a chance to really do some good good like i said uh come back because Anytime. we go on and on and on uh uh you know i i i have this love uh, of film especially and, and i also have this love of the written word and i've plunged into this so gary uh and, and mike and renee um thank you so much for thank you. sharing your time thank you very much. no problem yeah thanks for having us uh yeah and and please do come back because there's, there's a lot more things to chat about and you know what i love about the chemistry we just we just ramble on we go from where we were to talking about uh so many different topics and i think that's great and and that's good chemistry so please do come back no you sure will anytime all right, all right. thank you so much thanks thanks folks oh